I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to our preview of shows to come. These are coming attractions of Clear and Vivid to a device near you. It better be not too far from you or you won't hear it. Graham Shedd and I are really delighted with the lineup we have. We have some wonderful people, don't we, Graham? We certainly do. And a nice mixture, I think. Um, We always try to make sure that each season has a balance of different topics, different sorts of people, different conversations, and I think we've achieved it this time around. And you know what I notice is that at the beginning of every show, I talk about how the conversations are about communicating and relating. And sometimes the connection to communicating and relating is so tenuous that it may not seem to be about that. For instance, when I talk with fellow actors, there is the question of communicating the play to the audience. But the way the actors communicate with each other is also interesting in and of itself, and it's also a model for how we communicate with one another out in the real world, I think. And I think that's borne out by our our guest this season, Helen Mirren, who is such a wonderful actress. And she came from the stage the same way I did. And I wondered when we spoke if she had the same problem adjusting to film that I had. I, You know, for a long time, I, even though I was wearing a microphone on my costume, even though I was picking up every breath, every sound I was making, if I talked to somebody a few feet away, I spoke in a voice loud enough to be heard in the back row, even though there was no back row. <laughs> And I didn't realize that there was essentially no rehearsal. I used to rely on rehearsals to learn my lines. And then film, they say, okay, you stand here, you stand here, just run through it once so when the camera knows where you're going to be, you're not going to learn your lines that way. And I, it was a rude shock to me. And just being surrounded by people on the set, who are these people? What do they do? You're just not used to that on the stage. While you're acting, there's you in the audience. But in film, there are all these strangers standing around who have made each one of them a hundred movies each, and they're all watching you act. And it's, it can be unsettling until you get used to it. So I wondered if Helen had some of those same experiences. Coming from the stage, I had a hard time learning to act in front of a camera. Did you did you have to get yourself together and and be able to accept the challenges that you face in front of a camera? And for things like making sure you're in focus and in the light. And oh no, absolutely! I was I was so utterly useless, utterly useless because <laughs> you know no idea about getting in the shot even, or you know, or, or the frame of the camera, or what to do when you're in the frame. I you know I I felt when I started off in film acting, I, I called it, you know, deer in the headlights acting. It's like, <laughs> it's like action, freeze, go freeze. Well, hold on, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so it took me a long time. And then uh, I did a film called Excalibur. It was one of my very early films directed by John Borman and Poor John, he had all these completely inexperienced, who have all now become, funnily enough, Gabriel Byrne, Liam Neeson, myself, have become, you know, certainly experienced film actors. But at that point, none of us had any idea what we were doing. So, you know, I didn't realise that when you rehearsed a shot, you know, you couldn't change it. 
you know, you'd rehearsed it. Now the camera had rehearsed what they had to do and I'd walk in and say, I, I don't want to do what, what I did in rehearsal. <laughs> I, I think I should sit over here and then walk over there and I think that would be much better. Uh. You know, so, <laughs> so poor John was saying, no, you can't change it now. Go, go wherever you went. Yeah. yeah, the dolly's been laid, the track's been laid, you know. You, oh, oh, God. You know, yeah. you've got to do yeah. what we rehearsed, Helen. So even those fundamentals I didn't understand. You made the point in your introduction that there are all these strange people on a set standing around watching you work. And uh, Helen finally found that that was very much a part of the enjoyment of making a movie. So much of acting in front of a camera is actually your relationship with the crew, that you get to feel that you are a part of a whole dish of many ingredients and you're you're one of the ingredients but an important ingredient but you're not the only ingredient and now when I walk on a film set I was always sort of I, I didn't quite know who did what or who was who or you know and, and I felt shy and embarrassed on a film set um, and now I walk on a film set and I feel I know who's who and I know how to relate to people and I don't know I, I just found that was a very important part of the process. So that was Helen Mirren. She's going to be on our first show. And our second show uh, is going to be the first of a pair, both tackling a topic that is always in the news, which is diet and exercise. I think it's amazing. Don't you think it's amazing how that topic is not only always in the news, it's part of our standard repertoire of communication with one another. When I see friends get together, even before they talk about what's the latest series to binge on, they talk about how much weight each one of them has appeared to have lost <laughs> or gained. Nobody talks oh, yeah, about no. the stuff you gain. But <laughs> Over the last year and a half, yes, we've all gained yeah. a bit. Yeah. But these, the two scientists, both of whom are great communicators and both have new books out, and they take uh, slightly different tacks on the topic but they're consistent with each other. And they both have, um, as an important part of their research, have gone to uh, other cultures to see how other cultures eat and exercise. Uh, the first guy we're going to be playing is Herman Ponser. His book is called Burn, and its subtitle sort of describes what it's all about. New research, which is his research, blows the lid off how we really burn calories, stay healthy, and lose weight. So here's Herman Ponser. I'm an anthropologist by training, and I'm interested in how evolution shaped our bodies and, you know, what that means for us today. And if you want to understand anything about human evolution, you know, one thing you need to, to take into account is we're hunter-gatherers. You know, that, that's what hunter—the the human strategy is hunting and gathering. Mm. And we've been hunting and gathering for two and a half million years uh, since before we were Homo sapiens. And so if you want to understand about anything about the body, the, the sort of relevant ecological context— is hunting and gathering. So we were there to measure uh, energy expenditures, which are really fundamental to any organism's you know, biology. Uh, we were there to measure energy expenditures with the Hadza hunter-gatherer population in northern Tanzania to get the, the first measurements of energy expenditure with a hunter-gatherer population. And we were sure that, you know, you can imagine it's very physically demanding to be a hunter-gatherer. We thought they would have very high energy expenditures every day. Um, and in, in fact, what we saw was that when we compared their the calories they burn every day to the calories that men and women in the U.S. and other Western countries burn every day, it's the same. 
So they have the same energy expenditures every day as, as you know, as you and I do, and, and other Americans do, and other industrialized populations do, even though they're much more physically active. That's so strange. So that led to a, a completely different point of view about how what we eat affects us and how exercise affects us. We're encouraged constantly to exercise more to keep our weight down. But the, the Hadza people exercise, in effect, way more than we do. But they're using up the same calories. What does the exercise do for us if it doesn't help us lose weight? That's an important question. The exercise that they're doing, the activity that they're doing, isn't changing how many calories they burn every day as much as it's sort of changing the way that they burn their calories. First of all, uh, you know, even a really active person burns more than half their calories every day on, on things that you never see, like you know, brain function, immune function, digestion, all these things, uh, things that you, you aren't even aware of. And so you can make small adjustments in those activities to make room for the energy that your body is spending on activity. And so, for example, we know that when you are, if you exercise a lot regularly, your body spends less energy on inflammation. Inflammation levels are lower in people who exercise a lot. And your inflammation is just your immune system kind of being overactive. And so that's actually a mm. good reduction. Mm. Um, people who exercise all the time, their stress reactivity goes down. There's a really nice study looking at, at uh, college-age women who uh, were either assigned to exercise or just have sort of talk therapy. There are women with, who had uh, mild depressive symptoms, actually. And the study was more about the depression, but they measured energy expenditure along the way. And what they found is that when those women were, were jogging every week, not even that much, but when they're jogging every week, their cortisol levels and their epinephrine levels, so their stress reactivity, went down something like 30%, which mm. we, we know as well has a, a, you know, decreases the energy expenditure on that. And so it's that kind of thing where, you know, again, these, you know, the, the, the functions your body's doing all the time that you don't even notice get reduced. And a lot of those reductions are, are really healthy for you. So that's a fascinating take on energy and exercise that I hadn't appreciated. In fact, nobody, I think, really appreciated much before, which is that the body automatically switches how it uses your calories. If you use a lot of them exercising, you have less calories to spend on other things in your body, sometimes bad things like inflammation. Mm. So that's one of the reasons that exercise is healthy for you. And I love that bit about how the um, cortisol levels go down, stress hormones go down. That can have an effect on a lot of your life, maybe in some cases more important than the few pounds overweight you are. Exactly. So then uh, the other person that uh, we have talking about diet and exercise, uh, from a different point of view, but you'll see that it's consistent, is Dan Lieberman. He has a book which is called Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. So here he is talking about the fact that uh, the idea of exercise is, in fact, a fairly new one. You know, we all do physical activity. That's, that's something that humans have been doing for millions of years, and every other animal does. It's just moving around, doing stuff. Um, but, uh, but exercise is really a very special kind of modern, strange form of physical activity that nobody ever did until recently. Because it's, 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 it's voluntary, it's discretional physical activity for the sake of health and fitness. And... Um, and until recently, nobody had to do that. So it's, it's something we've invented in the modern world, along with reading and various other things we never did before, too. You know, in his conversation with me, Dan Lieberman reminded me of something that I had forgotten as years have gone by. I remember when jogging started as a craze. 
It was a new word. Newspapers were introducing us. People are jogging now. They're running down the street. You know, it was, we take it for granted now. Now people run a marathon on their lunch hour. So it's, it's, it's commonplace. Don't even call it jogging anymore. But that was, just as Dan said, the introduction of a new way to look at moving our bodies. Because in the past, there were plenty of other ways that we had to move our bodies necessarily. And that's something that we get into with him. Uh, he, like uh, Herman Ponce, he also uh, studied some other cultures, including one in Mexico. I was working with um, some, some Tarahumara farmers. So these are subsistence farmers. Um, they, they grow corn and, 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 and beans and, and squash and up in, the, up in the very remote area of, of northern Mexico. And they're also very famous for their long-distance running. And I was traveling around and collecting data on running. And, and, and I had, you know, being the good anthropologist, I had my list of questions. And, and one of my questions was about how they train for running. And I was told that this guy I was interviewing was a famous old, old elderly runner. He was in his 70s and can still run like 50 miles, right? And so um, I was working with a translator and... and and he wasn't the first person who struggled with this question because the translator was clearly having a hard time you know, conveying this particular question, which is training, because it turns out there's no word for training in this language um, <laughs> because nobody does it. And so when she finally explained that this gringo, you know, who's, who's asking him questions, you know, he runs up five miles every morning to stay in shape and to prepare for races, he looked at me. I mean, I remember, it was like one of those moments. He looked at me kind of with pity and he, <laughs> and he asked, and he said to her, why would anybody run if they didn't have to? And it was kind of one of those moments when I realized, yeah, you know, I guess what I do, you know, to stay fit is a very modern, strange thing. And, and until recently, you know, nobody did that. It's, um, and, and that was kind of the, the moment I thought, you know, that's going to be my next book. Well, we, I get the impression we're sort of forced into the idea of running not because we're chasing or being chased, but we, we, we have to make up for the fact that we have a washing machine, we have a car. Yeah, our suitcases are on wheels, we have escalators, <laughs> elevators, we have electric toothbrushes, electric can openers, I mean, Zumbas to clean our floors. I mean, so today in this very bizarre modern world, we have to choose to do unnecessary physical activity, right? Um, like sometimes, for example, you go to a building and you, if you want to take the stairs, you have to actually kind of look for them. It's kind of harder to take the stairs than, than to take the elevator. Uh, so, so we, you know, that's a very modern, recent thing. And, 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 and we, and, and, but it's also very ancient to kind of not want to take the stairs, right? I, I bet if you put an escalator in, in the Copper Canyons where, where my friend was or, or in the Kalahari Desert, you know, people there would take the escalator too, you know, to save energy. It's, it's an instinct. You also got into the topic with Dan of the evergreen subject of, if you want to lose weight, what's more important, diet or exercise? It is true that if you want to lose weight, dieting is way more effective than exercise. Um, and that's because for two reasons. The first is that if you, um, you know, if you, like I went for a, a five mile run this morning and I burned about 500 calories, um, and, you know, if I eat just a few pieces of bacon, that's the same amount of calories, right? It's, you know, it takes a lot of effort to, to burn a lot of calories, but it's much easier just not to eat a few pieces of bacon, right? So, so if you want to lose weight by, by going into what we call negative energy balance, it's, you, can, you can go into much more negative energy balance much more easily by dieting than exercising. So that's one reason. And then the other is if that once I got back from my run, I was hungry. <laughs> so I, I ate something, right? I, I, we have what's called metabolic compensation. You, you, you don't 
you know, you make up for some of that. <laughs> and it also may have some effects on your metabolism. And the third issue is, is most of the studies that are done. So remember, we talked about earlier that the standard recommendation for, for minimum levels of physical activity is 150 minutes a week. So what do people do when they're studying weight loss? They, they get people on that 150 minutes a week, you know, regimen, which is just 21 minutes a day of, of exercise, like a brisk walk. And they do it for just a few weeks because, you know, nobody can do a study for very long. And guess what they find? They find that people don't lose very much weight if you, watch, if you walk 21 minutes a day. But if you actually have people do, you know, like 40 minutes a day, like with 300 minutes a week, it turns out people do lose weight. And if you have even more, people do lose even more weight. So it turns out that the dose really matters. And um, so you, you're never going to be able to lose a lot of weight really fast by exercising. But many, many, many studies gold standard randomized control studies show that people can lose weight slowly, surely, not rapidly um, by, by exercising. And even more importantly, the, what, the, what the data show us is that physical activity, exercise, is important for preventing weight gain in the first place. Because most diets fail, right? People lose the weight and then it comes right back, right? And, but, but, but people who exercise uh, during and or after the diet, especially after the diet, are much more likely to keep that weight off. Dan tells a very uh, amusing story, a, a very revealing story about how he was once in a race with 60 horses. <laughs> he yeah. was on foot and he raced 60 horses who had riders over like a 20-mile course, which was up and down. And he beat 47 of them. Because the horses had to stop and rest once in a while. That's right. He, the horses he, overheated. So we can outrun very fast animals. That's and, right. and get more prey that way because That's we right. can last longer on the run than the animals can without pausing. As long as we don't lose track of them along the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> but there still is that problem of, Dan says it's much easier to say, I won't eat that extra piece of bacon. It's easier than exercising. That's true You in terms of how many calories you lose. But we have this age-old strategy that we apply. I won't eat that extra piece of bacon, except I will eat that extra piece of bacon and I will exercise tomorrow. <laughs> and then tomorrow comes and there's more bacon. Yeah, look at all that bacon. <laughs> Somebody's got to take care of it. Oh, you said one other thing he said, by the way, which I just forgot, which was that, you know, this thing about you shouldn't sit for too long? Yes. Uh, he says that if you, that good studies indicate that if you get up every 15 minutes, after sitting and just walk around a bit and sit down. It's very, very much better than just sitting continually. So, okay, you and I, we've got to get up and walk around a bit now. We've been on, we've been sitting down for 15 minutes. You know, well, I'm glad to hear that a lot of people listen to our podcasts while walking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, our next guest is the first ever Baroness we've ever had on the show. Yes. I bet there aren't too many baronesses. You, you probably had a bigger handle on what it was to be a baroness than I did. I don't <laughs> have any right. idea what it involves. That's right. So this is Baroness Sue Black. She's Baroness of Strome, Baroness Black of Strome. But you know her. You met her some several years yeah, ago. Yeah, we, right? we met a few years ago in Dundee, Scotland. And uh, she's a, a, a world-class forensic expert. And I knew she was very interested when we met in Dundee. She was very interested in how uh, forensic scientists communicate with juries. But it wasn't until we had our conversation 
on Clear and Vivid that I realized she had faced hundreds, if not thousands, of cadavers in her life. And I wondered how she how she handled that, especially the first one. That first time when you walk into a dissecting room and the, the big dissecting room we had in Aberdeen University had about 50 or nearly 60 glass tables with a body on each table and each body covered by a white sheet. And you walk into that room as an 18-year-old and it's really very daunting because it's not just what you see it's what you smell as well because it's it's the embalming fluid. And then somehow you've got to find the courage to pull back the sheet to see a dead body, often for the first time you've ever seen a dead body, let alone been in a room full of it. And then you're expected to try and put a fiddly little blade onto a scalpel handle without cutting your own fingers. And then you're expected to cut through human skin. And it's terrifying. And your, your fear before you start is almost crippling. But the minute you start to peel the skin back and you start to see all the wonders that are underneath, the most important thing is you forget to be scared. But it never leaves you. That first moment never, ever leaves you. Sue Black, Baroness Black of Strome, got her baronetcy uh, because of the amazing work she and her teams did in Kosovo after the uh, massacres there back in the uh, 20 years ago. And she had some uh, really riveting stories about what the experience was like in Kosovo, trying to determine how people were killed, where they were killed, and in finally then to bring to justice the people who were responsible for it. And here's one of her many stories that she tells in the, in the podcast. We're in the middle of a field doing the postmortems and recovering um, the evidence. And I can remember I was kneeling on the ground with a, a plastic sheet in front of me and a little body of, of just a, a little girl. She must have been about six. And she was wearing her pyjamas and her little red Wellington boots. And, and I was just about to start the process. And I looked up and all I could see in front of me was a group a complete row of Wellington boots. So the policemen were all standing in front of me in a row. And I, I sort of looked up and thought, what's going on? Why have they formed this sort of barricade in front of me? And when I looked beyond them, one of their colleagues had made that critical mistake. He'd looked at the child I was working with and he'd transposed the face of his own daughter onto that situation. And he just, he just broke down. He completely broke down. And under those circumstances, you have a team and a team has to stick together and we have to support each other through these difficult times. And the police officers felt their way of supporting him was to barricade him, to, to form a bridge between him and what I was doing. And I disagreed with them. I thought there was a better way. So I took my gloves off and I rolled my suit down round my middle and I went round the back of them and I threw my arms around his neck and I said, cry, you know, just, just let it all out. And he sobbed his heart out, but he knew what he'd done wrong. He'd made it personal. And once you make it personal, you let, you, you, you put a little chink in your armour and, and we have to try really hard for our own sake not to let that chink of armour be there. Because if we break down, 
our team is impacted and our team then can't do the job that they're there to do. Now, that doesn't make us cold, but it makes us very focused about what our, our purpose is. Hard to listen to some of that. She's a very strong woman, very empathic. When she speaks, you know she's taking into account how you feel about what she's telling you. And I think if she didn't have that quality, it would be even harder to hear some of her stories. We now have a complete change of topic. You had a fascinating conversation with a man who is a very well-known interpreter of complex science. His name is Michio Kaku. Uh, and he's, by the way, one of my wife's favorite writers. Uh, his most recent book is The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. He's one of our culture's leading communicators about one of the most tantalizing and hard-to-understand questions that we've ever raised, which is, is there a theory of everything? Is there some formula that explains pretty much every phenomenon in the universe? Uh, it was something that Einstein spent the la latter part of his life trying to figure out, too. So you asked him, this is, this is a great question, I thought, you asked him what the implications of finding a theory for everything would be. The immediate practical implication of the theory of everything is nothing. It's not going to affect you <laughs> and me. I'll be very blunt well, about Well, it's been nice talking with you. I'm glad to have seen you. <laughs> However, it'll answer some of the deepest philosophical, religious questions of all time. Uh, was there a beginning? Uh, what happened before the beginning? What happened before Genesis? Or a black hole? Is there a white hole that's on the other side of a black hole? Or are there other universes? Are there gateways? Are there... Einstein, Rosen, Bridges, connecting our universe to another universe. None of these questions can be answered using the old Einsteinian theory. We need a theory of everything. But you see, that's where string theory comes in, which is, of course, the subject of the book. It could answer these questions once and for all, whether there are other universes, whether there are gateways to these other universes. And then, of course, I often get the question, if there are other universes, then is Elvis Presley still alive in another parallel universe? And the answer is yes. He could very well still be alive, not in our universe, but in another parallel universe, he could still be belting out those hits, hit after hit, in another universe. So let's talk about this theory that you've dedicated your life to, and to a great extent, that will give us this knowledge. String theory, the idea, do I have this right in a nutshell, that the tiniest things are not atoms or particles, even tinier than that are little string-like things that vibrate. And when they vibrate at a certain frequency, you get a proton, at another frequency, you get an electron, and so on. Is that close? My God, you got it right. If I had a super microscope and could peer into an electron, it would not be a dot. It would be a rubber band. And when you twang the rubber band, it vibrates at a different frequency, and it turns into a neutrino. You twang it again, it vibrates, the rubber band turns into a quark. And so how many frequencies does the rubber band have? An infinite number of frequencies, depending upon how you vibrate it. And so we think that physics is therefore the harmonies, the harmonies you could write on this rubber band. Chemistry 
is the melodies you can play when these rubber bands bump into each other. Mm-hmm. The universe is a symphony of these strings. And then the mind of God that Albert Einstein spent 30 years of his life writing about, the mind of God would be cosmic music, cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. So in other words, Pythagoras 2,000 years ago had it right. 2,000 years ago, the great geometer Pythagoras said that music, music is the paradigm rich enough to explain the vast variety of forms that we see around us. What else is rich enough to do that? Music, he said. But that theory never went anywhere. The Roman Empire fell apart, and for a thousand years, we were thrown into darkness, superstition, and magic. But now we're reviving the old Pythagorean idea that that music is rich enough to explain the diversity, the rich diversity of matter that we see around us. But it's the music of subatomic particles. Your next guest is Jacqueline Novogratz, who is the founder and CEO of an organization called Acumen. Um, And she had a best-selling book a few years ago called The Blue Sweater, Bridging the Gap Between Rich and Poor. And that's what Acumen uh, attempts to do rather successfully. Uh, Now, I think you knew her, didn't you? Did you know her from a I knew her. We both were at the Rockefeller Foundation at the same time. And... um, didn't get to know her very well. But what I found in our conversation, which was really um, a wonder to me, was she is such a good communicator. She knows how to tell a story, and she knows how to use the richness of a simple object to keep your mind focused on the story. She's talking in general about the idea, I think, of how we're all connected and how it's important to help the poorest among us rise up. But they seem so distant from us. How do you go about that? And yet we are connected. And she uses the story of this object that even has a color, the blue sweater. When she says blue sweater, it's hard not to picture it. So it's a wonderful communication technique. And then it gets into the rich awareness of our connection. I love her story. So when I was a kid, I'm the eldest of seven, uh, big family, and um, I got a, a sweater from my Uncle Ed, and it was blue. It had zebras across the front, Mount Kilimanjaro's across the chest, wore it all the time until I was a freshman in high school, and my adolescent curves were filling out the, con- the contours of the geography in new ways. And I, and I believe that there's a humiliating moment in every teenage kid's life, and mine was when my high school nemesis reached called out across the, the hall where all the football players were um, and just made a really lewd comment to me. And, um, and I was just crushed. Ran home, ceremoniously dumped the sweater into the Goodwill with my mother, and I thought I'd never have to see it again. And then I fast forward literally a, a decade. And um, I was in Rwanda running through the hills of Kigali when um, I see 10 yards in front of me a little tiny boy with toothpick legs, and sure enough, he's wearing my sweater. And I um, breathe in, run up to the child, grab him by the collar, scare the bejesus out of him, turn it, and I see my name written on the tag of his sweater. <laughs> and um, the poor child 
ran away. Um, <laughs> you can't, can't blame him. Your first, first case of helping somebody. <laughs> My first case of helping someone. You thought I'd learned by that. But it is truly not only the interconnectedness of our world, but how, how our action and our inaction can impact people every day. The organization she created and still runs called Acumen, uh, its goal is to uh, help people who don't have enough, not by giving them stuff, but by helping them get stuff for themselves, giving them the, the, the means. And she has a terrific story to, that she tells about uh, one, of the, one of the very early examples of this that Acumen carried out. In the early 2000s, Malaria was killing over a million, uh, mostly kids, around the world. Sumitomo, the Japanese manufacturing company, or um, chemical company, had developed an an organic insecticide to impregnate a polyethylene-based netting um, with perithrum, which would kill the mosquitoes that carried malaria. All of the production was done in Asia, and yet 95% of malaria cases were in Africa. And so we were very new, um, but we were lucky enough to partner with UNICEF and um, Sumitomo, and we found a an entrepreneur in Tanzania, Anusha, uh, to take this technology and build a company. Uh, big risk. We made the loan. We worked with the company, and... Um, and then I started to know that it was going to work the first time I visited. And I saw one machine, two women making long-lasting malaria bed nets. Next time I come, four machines. Next time I come, 10 machines. A year later, a 70,000-square-foot factory. Uh, two years later, 10,000 women making 30 million nets a year. Um, ultimately, producing 15% of global production and proving to the world that you could manufacture as efficiently inside factories in East Africa as you could in Asia. And that there was a real opportunity for African solutions to African problems if we approached solving the problems both with our heads as well as with our hearts. And that for too long, we'd seen either all heart or all head. And it was time for a new game. And that was really, for me, the beginning of what was possible. I've loved that so much, what she said. I got, I, when she said there was a real opportunity for African solutions to African problems, I had a real emotional reaction to that. I, I, that sounds like extending more dignity to the people we want to help than we have up until now. And that seems to be the theme of, of Acumen. And I love that, how she concluded We've either seen all heart or all head, and it was time for a new game. Right. We have one more guest we're going to be able to tell you about. We have uh, 11 altogether, but we're, we're just telling you about a few of them. Uh, and this next guest is a woman that you met many years ago, about 20, 20-something years ago. Her name is Cynthia Kenyon, and I'll always remember the scene of you sitting with her in front of a microscope, and there were these two lazy-looking worms undulating through the uh, material on the the dish that they were in. Tell me about that. It was an amazing experience. I don't think I'll ever forget that. Cynthia was showing me worms that were old for microscopic worms, C. elegans worms. And um, 
they were old because they were two or three weeks old. I think that's the entire lifespan of that microscopic worm. And the old ones were just sitting in their lawn chairs, not doing anything, you know, just taking in the sun in the last days of their retirement. But there were other worms the same age who should have been slowed down by age that were undulating around like dancers at a disco. And the difference was they had had a gene altered or knocked out or something like that. It was amazing to see. I'll never forget that moment. But what I'll never forget more than that was the enthusiasm that Cynthia Canyon had about those little microscopic worms and about the work she was doing with them as we watched them on the screen. Here she is. This is Cynthia Kenyon. I mean, the significance of that was amazing. You change one gene only, and the whole animal ages much more slowly and lives twice as long. And it's just a little worm. So you could say, well, it's just a worm thing, which people said. Um, <laughs> but then people change the same gene in... Um, in fruit flies, which are different from the little worms, and they also change the similar genes in the mouse. And in all these cases, the animals age more slowly and live longer, a lot longer. And so I think before that time, we didn't think it was possible. People used to think, well, you'd have to you'd have to have one one way to fix the skin, another way to fix the heart, the intestine, everything. You'd, mm. It would be very difficult to fix everything. So the idea that you could change one gene, in fact, one DNA base pair in one gene, and have this whole transformation changed everything, really. Why is it that changing only one gene can affect the whole system? It turns out that the gene that was changed is kind of a master regulator, a master orchestrator of the um, resilience of the whole body. So one of the things that happens during aging is you become less resilient. Um, and this the system, so we change one gene, but the gene that we change, that we change controls other genes. There's a whole, it, it really orchestrates a, a huge number of genes, like a thousand or so. So many things change in the animal. And the end result is that the animal is much more resilient. It's resistant to all sorts of conditions that would normally kill an animal, like high temperature, um, the wrong salt concentration, um, pathogens, many, many things, practically everything. What it tells us is that animals have the ability to be a lot more resilient than they normally are. They can do it if they, if they quote, want to. They can mm. do it. If you change the master regulatory gene and you change the program, programming of the animal, you can make it more stress resistant and more resilient, and that will increase its lifespan. Cynthia Kenyon now works with a company called Calico, which uh, is one of several companies now investigating aging and ways to make us more resilient, just like those little worms. But you had some second thoughts about it after the conversation you had with her, right? I did. I, you know, we, we spoke maybe 20 years ago f for the first time, and I kept thinking about it. And at first it was amazing that she and others were telling me, other experts in the field of longevity were telling me that it could be routine for humans to live 200 years. And at first I thought, wow, we might live to 200. And then I thought a slightly different reading of that same line, oi, we might live to 200. 
because, because I began to wonder more and more what the implications of that would be. So, so I asked Cynthia about that. I remember when we talked 20 years ago, you painted this really lovely picture of when you changed the gene, they looked and felt half their age. Yes. So what started to worry me, the more I thought about it, around year two after we talked, I started to think, well, if I live to 200, will I look and feel the way I did at 100? So for the next, after 100, for the next 100 years, I'm looking like a 100-year-old looks now and, and getting worse. Um, it's a good, that's a very good point. First of all, I have to just say, and I always say this because it's very true, we don't know that the drugs that we could make to hit these genes will have an effect at all in humans. We don't know. Yeah. So that's the first thing. But let's suppose yeah. they do. Let's just suppose. Mm-hmm. As far as we know, it would be as though it took, you would age, it would take you two days to age as much as you now age in one day. Okay, so you would right. spend more t- a lot more time being young, mm-hmm. but then you would also spend more time being old. Right. On the other <laughs> hand, wait, there's one more thing, though, that's good, that is good, which is that in animals, these drugs, they, have, they seem to have very beneficial effects on diseases. There's less cancer. The heart is, is much better. Um, it seems like the brain is, more, is, is better. So it, it looks as though it's not just, you won't get the same um, set of diseases as severely ever with these, um, with these mutants. I think I understand something that I didn't understand before we started the conversation. Because I was thinking that we get all these reports that the longer we live as a society, the more among us will have Alzheimer's because... Uh, it hits older people more, so there'll be more cases. But it sounds like what you're saying is it's not just a question of living longer. It's a question of living longer with this gene altered or knocked out so that we are able to resist diseases like Alzheimer's. You're right. So the the diseases of aging should get pushed out. Now, I'm not trying to, I don't want to oversell this because it's not really clear what will happen. But at least if we go by what we see in animals, the diseases of aging seem to be pushed out and they that is later in time. And if anything, they seem less severe. So you feel better about it now? Yeah, I do. I feel much better. In fact, (laughs) I now regard the Italian toast, Centani, you know, may you live a hundred years. I regard that as a curse. <laughs> well, just the first step. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, a look at some of the shows that we have in the next season, which begins next week. And I hope that you join us and enjoy them as much as we enjoyed producing them. I hope you do join us. It's such a pleasure. The reason, one, for selfishly, the reason I hope you enjoy them the most is that it enables us to keep producing the show. And I get to have these wonderful conversations with some of the smartest, most empathic people that we have around. So uh, thanks for the opportunity for me to have the conversations just by listening. See you soon. 
Clear and Vivid has just celebrated its 150th episode. And in the meantime, we've also produced 21 episodes of our new companion series, Science Clear and Vivid. In a couple of days, Alan and I will be looking ahead to the new season of Science Clear and Vivid. And don't forget, next Thursday, here on Clear and Vivid, Alan's conversation with the wonderful Helen Mirren. <laughs>